one of the things I love doing with works of art like the Sistine Chapel um, or Leonardo's Last Supper is reverse engineering them and going back to that moment in time when the artist first has to stand in front of the blank wall with a paintbrush that he's dipped into um, his pot of paint um, and look at that wall and figure out what he's going to do because there's absolutely no guarantee that they were going to make a success of it. Now it's too easy for us to look back 500 years later and say, well, of course they were going to because it was Leonardo da Vinci and it was Michelangelo, but both of them did have failures um, in the course of their careers. I mean, I think it, it, which is something that shows that no matter how creative or no matter how ingenious you are, certain things will not work for you. This is Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. I've spent the past 10 years building a life and career around what I love, and on this show, I share what I'm learning along the way. I think there's a dangerous belief in creative work, and that is the belief that certain artists are simply gifted and that that alone explains their greatness. I think it's easy to look up at something like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and conclude that Michelangelo lived up to his reputation. He was known as the Divine One. It's easy to believe that he wasn't human, that he was actually a god of sorts. But today I'll be talking with a leading expert on Michelangelo, and specifically we'll be talking about Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel. Ross King is author of the book, The Pope's Ceiling. It tells the story of just how Michelangelo managed to paint 12,000 square feet of ceiling with little or no experience as a painter. In this conversation, you're going to learn how did Michelangelo curate his reputation as a divine painter? He really wanted people to believe that he was a divine painter, so he shaped that perception. Also, Michelangelo started painting the ceiling with little or no painting experience. He knew he would have failures along the way. How was it that he turned those inevitable failures into success in the project? Even though Michelangelo didn't have experience as a painter, he did have a built-up bag of tricks to draw from. Learn how Michelangelo used his other experiences to make his first attempt at painting a success. And if you're a Love Your Work Elite member, be sure to check out the bonus content. About half of this conversation ended up on the cutting room floor. As always, you can join Love Your Work Elite at lywelite.com. And I want to also thank Kyle Ritchie. He is a new Love Your Work Elite member. He messaged me on Instagram the other day, specifically asking how he could support the show, which strikes me as an extremely generous thing to do to be proactive about supporting the show. I told him about Love Your Work Elite. He had probably heard about it on the show before, but he did go ahead and join right away. If you'd like to help keep the show going and join Kyle, visit lywelite.com. That's lywelite.com. And I also want to thank our sponsor today, Storyblocks. When I write an article, I'm usually looking for a good picture to go along with it. Well, Storyblocks has tons of photos. They have 400,000 of them, in fact. They're all royalty-free. You're not going to have any legal issues. You can just use them for your personal projects. You can use them for your commercial projects. And Storyblocks takes care of us, so let's take care of them. Go to storyblocks.com slash loveyourwork to try it free for seven days. That is Storyblocks, S-T-O-R-Y, B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash love your work to download 
anything from 400,000 images and to unlock discounts on millions more. Also, I recently quadrupled my creative output. I've put together a toolbox of the 14 tools that I use to boost my creative output. Sign up at kadavi.net slash tools, and I'll send you that toolbox right away. That's kadavi.net slash tools. Now, here is Ross King. I'm here with Ross King, and we're going to learn a little bit about the creative process that Michelangelo used to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling. So, Ross, can we set the stage for this? What were the circumstances that Michelangelo was in beginning to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling? Well, the uh, circumstances were unprepossessing uh, because he he was asked to paint a vault um, of a chapel that had been built some 25 years earlier I mean, um, the late 1470s, early 1480s, and he was asked to vault 12,000 square feet of ceiling space, or to to paint the vault, which was 12,000 square feet, uh, which was a a huge amount of space. And any of your listeners who have been in the Sistine Chapel will appreciate just how vast that is. Um, And, you know, which was going to be a daunting task for any painter, uh, but it was even more daunting for Michelangelo because of the fact uh, that he did not consider himself a painter. And long, you know, 500 years after the fact, we might say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course he was a painter. But in fact, um, in 1506, when he got the commission to paint the vault of the Sistine Chapel, uh, he had very little painting work on his resume. He had done two magnificent sculptors, which really were the talk of Italy, the, the talk of Europe, really. Uh, the David, which he'd finished in 1504, and the Pietà, now in Rome, which he'd finished in 1499. So these two remarkable works in marble, uh, but he'd done very little painting. Really, the, the only painting, the only significant work he had to his name was a work now in the Uffizi, and it's only about four and a half feet across, and it's done in temper paint on panel. It's not in fresco. And in fact, Michelangelo had very limited experience of fresco. He did apprentice um, in the 1480s under a very good frescoist, but he he left a man named Ghirlandaio, but he left Ghirlandaio's studio uh, to become a sculptor. And so in many ways, this was uh, for Michelangelo an impossible task. He was asked by the Pope, by Pope Julius II, Il Papa Terribile, the terrifying, terrible Pope, he was asked by him uh, to paint the vault of the Sistine Chapel, something for which, as I say, he had absolutely uh, no credentials, uh, in many ways, no ability to do. And what about his relationship with Pope Julius? What about the 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 prospect that maybe he was set up to fail for this, or that there was a rival that was going to murder him, or that or that painting the ceiling was perhaps uh, a task that was a punishment from the Pope? What about all of that? Well, there, in some ways, it that might make a certain amount of sense. That paranoid conspiracy theory, which Michelangelo himself uh, certainly subscribed to in 1506, 1507, 1508, in those years when the Pope was trying to get him to paint. The villain of the piece for Michelangelo was a man named Donato Bramante, um, who was the chief architect, the chief papal architect. Michelangelo's conspiracy theory is that Bramante hated him, which he may well have done, 
Um, and what Michelangelo believed is that he would be, Bramante thought Michelangelo would begin this task of painting. And because of the fact that he had no experience, he would fail and he would leave Rome with his tail between his legs in disgrace. His reputation um, as world's greatest artist uh, would be in ruins. Um, and Bramante, therefore, uh, could step into the breach um, and make a success. Because Bramante was capable of doing fresco. He had tra- he was a trained fresco painter as well as an architect. Um, and so he was someone who knew all that was involved in fresco. And of course, he knew that Michelangelo could not do this. Um, and so we have from an, an absolutely impeccable source a letter um, in which Bramante reports to Pope, uh, Pope Julius that Michelangelo is not the man for the job. He says he cannot do foreshortening. And so Bramante actually tried to talk Pope Julius out of giving Michelangelo the task. And so in some ways, he's not the villain. I think he certainly disliked Michelangelo um, and was in competition with him. But the whole Sistine Chapel uh, plot, as Michelangelo, uh, that Michelangelo believed in, didn't actually exist in that way. Well, now, what about the prospect of it maybe being a punishment from the Pope in a way because Michelangelo had fled Rome, I believe, because maybe he was owed money for the for the marble that he had quarried for the um, the, the tomb of Julius. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. It um, yes, that's the backstory to it. It's, I mean, in many ways, we I think we should pity Michelangelo and and understand his disappointment. I think what's so remarkable about the Sistine Chapel Commission um, and and his uh, carrying out of that Herculean task is that it was something that, A, he did not have the capability to do, and B, or he did not have the capability in 1506, 1507, 1508, um, he certainly learned on the job. But the other thing is he didn't want to do it because of the fact that he had lost his dream commission. Because the backstory to Michelangelo and Pope Julius is that in 1505, Julius commanded him to come to Rome from Florence. Julius, I think we have to believe, had seen the Pietà, which had been carved um, in the late 1490s for the tomb of a French cardinal um, and was going to be placed in St. Peter's. And then um, he would have heard about, he would have heard reports of the David, this colossus that Michelangelo had carved um, in Florence and finished in 1504. Within months of Michelangelo carving the David, uh, which was the most extraordinary statue anyone had ever seen, um, and I think you could still say today it's one of the most remarkable statues you could ever imagine. Um, and uh, uh, Julius wanted this young sculptor, who at this point uh, was only 30 years old. He wanted him to come to Rome and work for him. And so Julius decided that what he would do would have, be to have Michelangelo carve his tomb, Julius's tomb, because what it was, a, popes were a bit like pharaohs, and when a pharaoh was born, the pyramid work on the pyramid would begin. Um, and in the Middle Ages and through the uh, the Renaissance in Italy, once you became pope, you began thinking about your tomb, and each pope, one sort of through the the fourteen hundreds, wanted to have a larger and more spectacular tomb than the previous pope. Um, and Julius was going to have the, uh, the sort of mother of all tombs. It was going to be, um, I mean, what he plotted with Michelangelo in the um, glory days of 1505, 1506 was this remarkable structure. It was going to be 
um, some 40 feet high, and there were going to be about 50 life-size and over-life-size statues on it. Um, and it was going to be crowned, of course, with an effigy of Julius II himself. And Michelangelo was extremely keen on this this work of art. I mean, work of art is actually understating what it was going to be. It was a huge decorative ensemble. And had Michelangelo been allowed to do it, and he did part of it, as some of your viewers may or listeners may know, um, um, and you can see parts of it in Florence, parts of it in Rome, parts of it in Paris. Um, sadly, it never came together in the way that Michelangelo wanted because of the fact that initially he quarried the marble I mean, he could not wait to start on this. He got a hundred tons of marble from Carrara um, and brought it, had it shipped at great expense uh, to Rome. He had it unloaded in what is now the um, uh, Piazza San Pietro, the St. Peter's Square in Rome. And he was all ready to start chiseling, to begin work on it. When the Pope said, stop, I don't want you to do that. And in fact, um, reneged on the initial payments he was supposed to make to Michelangelo and said, I, I don't want the work on my tomb because I'm going to do something else. And that is, I'm going to rebuild St. Peter's. And so the genesis of St. Peter's in Rome, new St. Peter's and the Sistine Chapel, Sistine Chapel Commission sort of overlap uh, because of the fact that Julius said to Michelangelo, I can't pay you for this because everything that I have is going, going to go towards this colossal basilica that I'm going to build that I'm going to rebuild, and therefore I have another job for you, which is painting the vault of the Sistine Chapel. So what happened to Michelangelo in 1506, after he'd been a year and a bit in Rome, and after he'd quarried all of this marble, is that his dream commission was taken away, and he was given this other task, the Sistine Chapel Commission, for which he did not have the expertise, the background, the capabilities. And so I think we can understand his consternation um, in 1506. And what happened then is that, that he fled Rome. Um, and as you said, one of the theories is that perhaps he was being punished by being made to uh, do the commission. Um, and I think Julius w genuinely wanted him to do it because the Sistine Chapel um, was named after Sistine as a reference to Sixtus IV, who was Pope in the 1470s, early 1480s, the man who constructed the Sistine Chapel, and he happened to be the uncle of Julius II. They came from the same family. So Julius wanted to get it decorated. He wanted to have the Sistine Chapel um, as a kind of representation of the splendor of his beloved uncle, the man to whom he owed his ecclesiastical career, um, through the kind of nepotism that, that was rampant in those days. Um, and so he wanted to have it decorated. But Michelangelo fled Rome in Easter of 1506, saying, um, you know, effectively, if I didn't leave Rome at that time, I would have ended up in the foundations of St. Peter's, i.e. Donato Bramante would have murdered me. Uh, but of course, that is um, a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, but he really was fleeing a commission that he didn't want. Julius spent the next two years trying to get him to come back to Rome and work on it. And so what he did uh, was issued papal bulls. Michelangelo went back to Florence and Julius issued paper bull, papal bulls 
urging him to come back, urging the Florentine authorities to send him back uh, to Rome. And ultimately, after two years, that's what happened. Um, th- there was punishment involved. Michelangelo had to go before Pope Julius in the city of Bologna, uh, to which Julius had gone. Michelangelo had to come there, meet the Pope, essentially kiss his ring, kiss his feet, and beg for forgiveness for being disobedient. And then, as a kind of precursor to his work on the Sistine Chapel, he had to work on um, a, a, a bronze statue of Julius that was going to be placed on the facade of the cathedral in Bologna. And so Michelangelo spent the year of 1507 working on this colossal bronze statue of Julius. And it is almost as if, I think in many ways, that was the punishment that he was being made to do something uh, that he really didn't want to do. He didn't enjoy living in Bologna at that time. um, And he wanted to be back in Florence working on various other commissions. Uh, But of course, Julius was such a powerful figure. I think one thing that we always have to consider um, with him um, and his relationship with Michelangelo is these were two type A personalities. These were two people who were very stubborn, very ambitious um, and uh, Julius was, as I say, the, the terrible pope, the terrifying pope, um, who was this larger-than-life figure like Michelangelo, who wanted to get his own way. And so in many ways, with Julius trying to get Michelangelo to do something, it was the irresistible force meeting the immovable object, and there were going to be sparks flying. And I think that's one of the things that makes it such a wonderful story, this uh, this sort of competition uh, between these two characters, uh, um, the the Pope and his artist. And what specifically about the medium of fresco makes it so much more difficult than, say, the panel painting that Michelangelo had done in the 20 years since being in Girlandio's studio? Well, first of all, of course, size, which is sort of self-evident that he's painting something that's incredibly large. He's also not in the comfort of his studio painting something that is on an easel. Um, And so he's um, not in his comfort zone. He is going to be up on a scaffold, not lying on his back, as poor Charlton Heston had to do in The Agony and the Ecstasy. Um, That uh, comes from, as I described in my book, that is a fallacy based on a mistranslation of a Latin word, uh, which uh, actually resupinus, which should be translated as bent backwards, not on his back. Uh, Because if you think about it, why would he just have a a very narrow crawl space on on which to work? Being painting Um, on, painting on his back probably would have been worse than the... (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Because he needed other people on the scaffold with him because... No fresco was uh, a work of one person. It was a collaborative effort. You needed to have helpers, apprentices, and so forth, people like that with you. So those logistical things. But even beyond them, uh, fresco was the was known as the most difficult of all painting techniques. Um, and a younger contemporary of Michelangelo, a man named Giorgio Vasari, later wrote that Anyone could succeed at temper painting or oil painting, which was coming um, into Italy at this point. Anyone could, could, could succeed at that, but only the very best painters um, could succeed at fresco. He said it was the most, um, it was virilmente, it was the most uh, virile or manly form of painting. Only true men, real men, he men could succeed 
um, at fresco painting. Um, and one of the reasons for that is you were not simply painting with uh, temper paint or oil paint, or you weren't painting with temper or oil on a dry wall. Um, you were painting with watercolors. You mixed your, your pigments with water only, and then you were painting onto a wet surface, so a wet surface of plaster. So what happened each morning is you turned up to paint. You would turn up maybe at 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and you would hope that your plasterer had been there an hour or so earlier and had covered maybe five square feet um, of the vault or the wall that you were painting with plaster. And you as the painter then had 8, 10, 12 hours in the day to get your pigments onto that five square feet, this limited area that you were working on uh, before the plaster dried, because the, the difficulty and the beauty of plaster and the longevity of it are linked. Um, what is happening is that your watercolors chemically become part of the wall. You have to add them as the, 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 the mortar, as the plaster is drying. And as it dries, of course, when it's dry, it becomes chemically part of the wall, which is why frescoes that are 500 years old, 600, 700 years old, as, for example, those of Giotto um, uh, in Florence and the painters in Assisi, why those are in such good condition is because they're painted in that particular way. But of course, there are great difficulties in doing that because you can't rethink your work of art. You can't retouch it. You can't look at it the next day, two days later or a month later, and decide that you want to redo it. If you want to redo it, and if you think that the adjacent patches don't match, you have to get out your hammer and chip the plaster off the wall and start again. Um, and so it was something that was um, famously difficult, notoriously difficult. And as I say, Michelangelo had absolutely no experience, not absolutely no experience, but extremely limited experience in doing it. We've talked about some of the sort of misconceptions of the project, the uh, murder plot, the fact that he didn't paint on his back. Um, what were some of the other m common misconceptions that there are about this project of painting the Sistine Chapel ceiling? I guess one of them is that, and, and Michelangelo himself was responsible for this one, is that he worked on it on his own. Um, in fact, he said that he worked alone on the scaffold without anyone to grind his pigments for him, uh, which is an outright lie on his part because of the fact that we know who worked with him um, and through the documentation. Um, and a, a great Michelangelo scholar in America, uh, William Wallace, uh, has found the documentation for this. And so all of the names come up. Um, and these are people that Michelangelo had to appeal to in order to learn how to do fresco. And he sent, to, what happened is that in 1508, when he realized that he could not get away from doing this work of art and he had to do it, he sent to Florence. He went to friends, uh, and first and foremost, to someone named Francesco Granacci, um, who's not a name to conjure with in art history. Um, there are some of his paintings scattered around. He's a um, a, a workmanlike painter, but he was a great technician. And Michelangelo had trained with him as a young man and was still friendly with him. And so he basically touched Granacci and said, 
come uh, and bring, bring some people with you to Rome and help me out. Um, and so they came and not only gave him advice and were sort of consulting frescoes for Michelangelo, uh, but they also wielded the paintbrush and, and ground pigment for him. He had uh, what was known as a fatorino or a, um, a kind of gopher or uh, a boy who would uh, help him grind pigments, I'm sure, carry things up onto the scaffold for him, uh, get him glasses of water, whatever he wanted, things like this, a, a helper up there with him, as well as these apprentices who, um, as I say, were trained in the Florentine style of fresco painting in the 1470s, 80s, 90s, and knew what they were doing um, and, and could help them out. And no, because, I mean, 12,000 square feet is a, a huge amount of, 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 of wall surface, of wall surface to cover. And not even a Herculean figure like Michelangelo was going to be able to do all of that on his own, because, of course, there are vast expanses of sky and water and costume and things like that in the painting. And so I think there's absolutely no doubt that the, the fresco is the work of many hands. Michelangelo ultimately would have done the the faces of Adam, the face of God the Father. I'm sure Michelangelo did the, the famous uh, hands, the touching hands. But many of the other bits would have been done by these imports that he brought with him from Florence. We're going to take a quick break. I'm very happy to report that Skillshare has renewed as a sponsor for Love Your Work. I know that there are so many listeners out there who are curious types like me and you never want to stop learning. So that's why Skillshare is perfect for all of you. Skillshare is an online learning community with over 17,000 classes in design, business, and more. You can learn everything from business analytics to social media marketing to street photography. So like, let's say you have a website and you want to get more traffic. Having rock solid SEO is a great way to do that. I've personally made a lot of money from ranking well on search engines. Skip the Netflix tonight and check out this awesome class from Rand Fishkin from Moz. It's called Introduction to SEO, Tactics and Strategy for Entrepreneurs. With Skillshare, you get unlimited access to Rand's class and all the other classes. For one low monthly price, you never have to pay per class again. Skillshare is giving my listeners a month of free access, absolutely free, Go to Skillshare.com slash loveyourwork to redeem your free month. Skillshare helps keep this podcast free. So please, if they interest you, go to Skillshare.com slash loveyourwork so that they know that I sent you. Chris. Hey, Chris. I'm talking to you, Chris. Okay, so right now, most of you are like, who the heck is Chris? But there are a few of you who are really freaking out right now. So, Chris. I think now is the time for you to join Love Your Work Elite. You've been listening for a while. You like the show. You want to help keep it free for others. You also want early access to episodes. You want master classes. You want to hang out with me and all the other Chris's in the Love Your Work Elite community on our monthly office hours. Our goal is to get 3% of our listeners and 100% of listeners named Chris to join Love Your Work Elite. That will help us keep making the show, keep making it free, and keep the back catalog free for everyone too. I know you've been thinking about it, Chris, but now is the time. You're really just better off deciding and taking action right now. You'll have that mental space left over to think about something else. And you and all the other Chris's will just plain feel really good to be a bigger part of making this show. Maybe someday this can be a fully Chris-supported show. Go to lywelite.com and learn more and join. Again, you can join at lywelite.com 
even if your name isn't Chris. There's a quote that I've heard attributed to Michelangelo, but I haven't <laughs> I haven't been able to track it down. It's very popular, but I don't know if it's actually a real quote, but it was basically if people knew how hard I worked, they wouldn't call it genius. Is there any indication that he actually said that? Um, yes. Um, but I mean, the interesting thing about that statement is in many ways it he wanted uh, people to think that he was a genius. Um, and so in many ways, he, there's a, a kind, there's an uncharacteristic modesty in that statement. Um, what I, I think what Michelangelo wanted by making that statement, wanted to have known is how hard he worked. And there's no question he worked incredibly hard throughout the entire course of his life. Um, he died on, just before he was 89 and he worked until about two weeks before his death. Uh, so, and there were not many idle moments during those 89 years. So he did work incredibly hard. Uh, but he also, um, d- w- one thing that I found fascinating is towards the end of his life, he began editing his output. Um, and he began burning drawings and things like that in order to, um, as one of his uh, friends said, in order to effectively cover his tracks and not allow people to see the development of his genius. And so anything that he had drawn, uh, which appeared to be less than perfect, he got rid of uh, so that future art historians or um, uh, other artists would not see that even the great Michelangelo could have a misstep or turn out a dud, something like that. I think he wanted to get rid of all of that. Um, So I think he did want people to regard him as a genius and he did want people to give him full credit for what he did. Uh, But he also wanted people to know just how hard he worked. And believe me, if you were his patron, he certainly told you how much he worked. Um, And uh, in constant letters and harassments for payment and things like that. Um, But it's also interesting that he was known in his own lifetime as Il Divino, the Divine One. And so his reputation uh, was so colossal um, even before he died in 1564, that he was renowned as a kind of divine, almost messianic figure. So he was really curating his artistic uh, footprint, not only for after his life, by destroying work that he did that maybe wasn't uh, up to his standards or maybe even process work to make it kind of look like things were conjured uh, from from just straight from his fingertips, Now, I've been looking at this project a lot as I'm writing a book on creative productivity, and I think one of the things that um, is interesting about this and about the story of Michelangelo is this idea of him being the the divine one of curating his uh, artistic footprint to kind of make it look more mystical and more magical than then I'd like to argue that then it actually is. And I think that this is right, one, right. one of these things that uh, that I, I see a problem with with, with creativity and, and creating art is this idea that there's a muse, that there's this mysticism to, to things like this. And I think it makes it more difficult for people who want to create things to be able to start, to not be intimidated, to accept that they're going to do work every once in a while that isn't very good. So with that in mind, there's, there's been some things that I've looked at with the process that Michelangelo took to paint the Sistine Chapel ceiling that maybe makes me think that it's 
not so mystical, that there were some very practical things that happened that helped him take on this giant, impossible, seemingly impossible project. Um, I guess one of the things that I noticed was that it, you mentioned that he started with a less conspicuous part of the chapel That's as, right. as, he, as he painted. Can you talk about that? Yes, he, um, he did not begin at one of the two ends of the chapel, which we might think would have been the natural place to begin, that he would start either above the entrance or above the altar um, and just work his way across or work, work his way back from the altar or forward from the entrance. But in fact, he didn't. Um, I, he knew that there was going to be um, difficulties early on, uh, even with his team of experts that he brought down from Florence. He knew that this was going to be a difficult task and he might not succeed at it. And in fact, one of the things I love doing with works of art like the Sistine Chapel um, or Leonardo's Last Supper is reverse engineering them and going back to that moment in time when the artist first has to stand in front of the blank wall with a paintbrush that he's dipped into um, his pot of paint um, and look at that wall and figure out what he's going to do because there's absolutely no guarantee in either case, either Leonardo on The Last Supper or Michelangelo in the Sistine Chapel, that they were going to make a success of it. Now it's too easy for us to look back 500 years later and say, well, of course they were going to because it was Leonardo da Vinci and it was Michelangelo. But both of them did have failures um, in the course of their careers. I mean, I think it, it, which is something that shows that no matter how creative or no matter how ingenious you are, certain things will not work for you. And in the case of the Sistine Chapel, it may well have been um, uh, the, the case that Michelangelo failed at it. And I think he knew that in his heart of hearts when he stood there in May of 1508 with his brush wet, ready to go. Um, and what he did is he began not on the scene above the doorway, he began the next scene after that, which is, when, if you're in the Sistine Chapel, if you were to enter the way that people entered in um, the um, 1400s and 1500s, that would not have been the most eye-catching spot. And so I think he wanted to sort of buy himself some time by choosing this particular spot. And then the spot that I'm talking about is the one where he puts Noah's flood, which I think is the least successful of all of uh, the panels that he painted on the vault. It's unsuccessful in the first case because um, he had to redo parts of it because there was a kind of efflorescence of salt. He didn't know um, salt in the vault. He didn't know how to make his um, his plaster. And so he had to consult with Giuliano de San Gallo, an architect from Florence who'd worked in Rome for many years. And San Gallo told him how to do it. And so on take two, he managed to get it right. But unfortunately, um, he did waste several weeks getting it wrong and had to take up his hammer um, onto the scaffold and, and chip off, knock off what he'd done. And so, um, he, I mean, yes, he's il divino, and yet there are missteps and um, imperfections. Um, not all of the chapel is as successful. Um, I, w an interesting thing that happened is that midway through painting, um, just after the creation of Eve, we have um, a split. And when you're on the floor in the Sistine Chapel, or if you look at a good illustration, you can clearly see that it is a vault of two halves. And on the 
um, side closest to the entrance, all of the panels that he has, um, the figures are quite small. And from the floor of the chapel, in some ways difficult to see. And then afterwards, on the second half of the vault, they're much larger. And the reason for that is in 1511, when he was about halfway through, the vault came down, or I'm sorry, the scaffold came down because he built a scaffold halfway across the vault. And then it was the time to take it down. And when he took it down, he stood on the floor and he looked up and he realized, oh no, I've made my figures too small. And so what he did then um, was when he rebuilt the scaffold, he did larger figures. And so the creation of Adam and the figures going towards the altar, the figures, the um, God, the Father, the creation of light and, and uh, dark, things like that. God, the Father, is much, much larger than the figures that he has in the narrative scenes from the story of Noah, for example. Well, in fact, wasn't the, the very first panel that he did after that, I believe it was a it was a two-year break or something. Uh, That's right. The, the very f- oh, it, actually, one year. One year, um, okay. Yes, because the Pope was not paying him. And so he said the Pope had other concerns, which was fighting battles. And so Michelangelo said, if you are not paying me, I'm downing my brushes and not working. And so uh, he had a year hiatus. And so he had Sorry, a, a year for it to incubate there. And then the very first panel that he did, if I'm, if I'm right, is the most iconic, most famous panel of the entire ceiling, which would That's be right. the creation of Adam. That's right. Absolutely. And so you're right. He had a year to think about what he was going to do next and how he was going to do it. And so I think we think of how he worked. Um, if He began work in 1508, and I think very rapidly in the course of that summer and autumn, had to make sketches, had to figure out that what the overall design was going to be and start painting. And so his design, uh, the designs that he made were probably done quite quickly. Yeah. Um, and maybe were, uh, I wouldn't say rushed, but maybe he would have enjoyed more time. But what one of the constant refrains is Julius breathing down his neck, trying to hurry him up, trying to get him to finish. And so now, as you say, in 1511, Julius has clanked off on yet another military expedition um, and Michelangelo is left kicking his heels in Rome, um, waiting for um, Julius to come back and pay him. And he's looking up at the vault, seeing the mistakes that he made, absorbing them, and then looking at that the blank second half of the vault and thinking, what can I do there that's going to be different, that's going to make it more successful? And yet will also, in some ways, harmonize with what I've done already. I think it's very interesting that, yes, he started with the less conspicuous part of the chapel. As you said, he ended up destroying the first few weeks' worth of work. I don't know if that was right. if that was entirely because of a mold problem or if some of it might have been that maybe he wasn't happy with his, his technique. Um, and then also that he was willing to let his work change and progress as things went on when he hit the halfway point and decided that he had maybe done some missteps. He didn't try to go back and do that all over again. Uh, he just went ahead with the rest of the ceiling and, and everything turned out fine. Is there any indication about about those different things, starting with the less conspicuous part of the chapel, destroying the first few weeks' work, uh, and, and being, being willing to... Uh, evolve his approach. Is there any indication directly from Michelangelo about how he felt about any of that or his thought process in any of that? Sadly, we don't know if he thought his design for Noah's flood was not working. 
What we do know is that there was a, a problem with damp and a problem with an efflorescence of salt and mold on the vault very soon after he painted it. And so he realized that the chemical composition of his plaster was all wrong, and he had to get something that was right for the Roman climate. And that's when he called in San Gallo. It would be interesting to know if he thought, no, the design isn't working. It may well be the case that he thought, yes, I don't like the way I've done these figures. But of course, he could not judge them from the floor. He could only judge them <clears throat> by maybe lying on the uh, the scaffold and looking up whatever space he gave himself, maybe seven or eight feet, and looking up those seven or eight feet and trying to see how these figures might work, uh, which is incredibly difficult. I mean, it's a I can't emphasize how difficult this task was. And in fact, one of the things that we've lost, I think, the perspective on, because it's, the, it's become so famous, is how odd it was to have a multi-figure composition on the vault of a chapel. Usually the chapel, the vault of a chapel would simply be painted with blue, a very beautiful blue uh, with gold stars on it to give an image of of the night sky or of heaven. Um, And all of the decorative work, all the storytelling took place on the walls. And yet now Michelangelo was doing something that generally would have been on the walls of the vault, but the wall, sorry, the walls of the chapel, but the, um, the walls of the chapel had already been painted decades earlier, and all that was left for him was the vault. Um, and the Pope did say that, and, and there's an interesting thought process of Michelangelo in this, the Pope did say, look, if you paint a kind of geometric scene on the vault and give me the 12 apostles, I'll be happy. Michelangelo could have done that. He probably could have done it quite quickly. And in fact, he could have farmed out. He could have outsourced the geometric patterns, uh, which would have sort of been zigzags and um, uh, little um, abstract patterns across the vault. And then on the springing point where the vault curves upward from the wall, he could have painted the 12 apostles, something he probably would have enjoyed doing um, and could have done quite um, quickly and easily. And in many ways that did morph into the prophets and sibyls that he has put in those positions. However, Michelangelo, Michelangelo said that would be a poor thing and he therefore decided that what he would do would be to paint, I think, three, I've forgotten the exact number, I think it's 363 human and humanoid figures on the vault. And so even though he didn't want to do this job, he decided that he was going to do it properly, and he was really going to make a spectacular show of it. And so I think we don't want to lose sight of that aspect of his personality there was a job that he did not want to do, and yet when he realized that he had, he could not get out of doing it, he poured his heart and soul into it and actually exceeded the brief that he'd been given by the Pope. Yeah, and I think – I like to think that he was – he maybe he hadn't uh, painted fresco before, but he was an experienced artist. He had at least worked with a medium before and, and uh, experienced all of the roadblocks that you are just going to run into as a – as an artist. And I think that shows in his technique that, you know, it, it seems like by the end, he wasn't planning his scenes quite so much. He might've just painted directly on the plaster instead of transferring a drawing to the plaster. So it seems like he got a lot more comfortable with the medium as he went and probably kind of knew that was the way it was going to go as he was beginning. That's right. He, 
I think one of the things that we see happening is that A, he develops as a painter. And by the time he finishes in 1512, he finished October 1512 after roughly four years after he began. And so you could say it was painted in four years. But as we've said, he really painted it only in two years because of the fact that, uh, I'm sorry, in three years, because he took that year off when Julius wasn't paying him. So he worked, That that's an incredible workload that he did with his apprentices over that uh, period of time. Uh, but And by the end of that, there is no question, he was the most accomplished and brilliant frescoist in Italy, which meant the most accomplished and br- brilliant frescoist in the world. Um, and so in the course of that time, he went from being a complete novice uh, to being the absolute last word in the technique. And he had really exceeded what anyone else had done um, in the, um, let's say, the 250 years before that, that people had been seriously doing frescoes in central Italy. Um, and he really exceeded anything else, um, just in the size, in the scope, in the ambition, um, in the, the sort of kinetic energy that he gives to all of the figures on the ceiling. I also like to think that while he wasn't experienced in fresco, he was a very experienced artist. He had a lot of preparation and training up front that made him able to take on a task like this, namely the fact that he had done very big projects in general, projects like the David. He had an extension, extensive knowledge of anatomy. He had been doing so many dissections that I think, as, as you and I had talked about, that we don't even have names for some of the uh, anatomy that he uh, ended up drawing. And, he, and I might have seen this somewhere else, but I saw that maybe he had like kind of a, a library of like body parts, like terracotta hands or something like that, that would be used over and over again throughout his compositions. Uh, also, d- maybe drapery uh, that was set in plaster uh, that he had maybe drawn over and over again, sort of a library of knowledge to put together along with this challenge of figuring out fresco to make this work happen. Does that sound accurate to you? It does. And every artist of the time did that. And Michelangelo probably just had a better library than most other people, Leonardo da Vinci uh, accepted. Um, He um, you would do drapery studies and things like that, where you would uh, drape um, a blanket over someone's knees and, and make a plaster cast of it. Uh, so you could then use that uh, to make drawings from. And uh, so we see that, that these um, uh, drapery studies appearing again and again in paintings, the same draperies will appear because these things are then turned into um, finished drawings or they're put into copy books and things like that. You really develop a kind of pattern book and a lot of props um, as a an artist um, at that particular time, which simply makes sense. And so, because besides having his own plaster casts, um, he, like many other painters, would also make drawings of, of ancient statues, um, things like the Laocoon, which was discovered in 1506, Leokwan and his sons, the famous sculpture group, um, or the Belvedere Torso, um, or the Apollo Belvedere, all of these ancient statues, Michelangelo knew and made copies of, made drawings of them. Um, and um, they sort of entered his his DNA, I suppose, through a kind of 
osmosis and became a part of everything that he did. Uh, so maybe that's one other point that I'd make about his creativity, um, that it it owed, um, he, Michelangelo owed cultural debts or aesthetic debts to many people. And so being a, a genius doesn't mean you're entirely self-generating and owe no debts to the past. Um, maybe one of the things that Michelangelo was burning uh, was his his studies that he made of other artists because he didn't want his debts to other painters and other sculptors to be known um, because he wanted to be seen as self-generating. But no artist can be that way. Uh, this has been such an interesting conversation uh, about Michelangelo and, and the Sistine Chapel ceiling. I think it's going to be very interesting for our listeners. It's going to be some uh, n- nice research for things that I'm working on as well. So thank you very much. Sure. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ross King. I hope it helps you see that great artists are just people. They're just like you and I. I highly recommend his book, The Pope's Ceiling. You can buy it at academy.net slash pope. For more on the creative process in big projects, listen to James Pierce Conley on episode 91. James is a set designer for productions like Bill Nye Saves the World and Martha and Snoop's Potluck Dinner Party. When I put out an idea, sometimes you hit a home run. And then sometimes you start with a piece of clay and you, you, you work up a shape and you work up a little space and it's not right. They look at it and they say, ah, this is not the right vibe. And you start again. And I agree, you know, especially when you hear the feedback and you have to really hear the feedback, look at it the way they're looking at it and see what they're bumping on. Try again. I feel like trial and error is not a fail. It's actually just a way to find the sweet spot. Again, James is on episode 91. And if you're an LYW Elite member, check out the bonus material for this episode. About half of our conversation ended up on the cutting room floor. I talked to Ross about how it was that he turned a failed attempt at a life in academia into a unique career in writing novel-like history books like The Pope's Ceiling. In fact, someone told me that the the term uh, for what I do is I'm an alt-doc. I'm a, an alternative doctorate. And there are a lot of us out there because, of course, if you just get, if it's one in 90 um, who get a position in a university, there are 89 of us floating around doing other things, as you say, creatively um, and inventively. You can join Love Your Work Elite at lywelite.com. Is Love Your Work helping you crack the code on fulfilling work? If so, I could really use your help. For the show to continue and to continue being free for everyone, it needs your support. One way you can help is to subscribe. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Just hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app. Apple podcast ratings help too. Just go to kadavi.net slash Apple, click on write a review and click on the star rating. You don't even have to write a review. It just takes a couple of seconds. You can also join Love Your Work Elite hosted on Patreon. You could call it a donation, but it's really much more than that. You'll get your own personal RSS feed with early access to episodes and bonus content. You'll also get a discount on Love Your Work merchandise. Learn more at lywelite.com. Love Your Work is brought to you in part by top Love Your Work Elite members such as Arif Akhtar and Ed Stanfield of startwithclarity.com. This has been Love Your Work, and I'm David Cadavy. The theme music for the show is At Sea by Dorena from the album About Everything and More by arrangement with Deep Elm Records at deepelm.com. Love your work. 
is a production of Academy Inc.